So has technology in the virtual world that we live in made it easier to communicate or harder? Sure, in some ways, it's made it easier to have distributed staff and have clients all over the world, but we've lost the emotional impact of our communication when we don't have that face-to-face. Think about our emails that maybe don't quite get the point across that we were trying to make. We have to learn how to communicate differently in a virtual world. And in this episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast, I visit with Dr. Nick Morgan, author of Can You Hear Me? This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by CloudPhone. You can get big-time, modern, virtual phone functionality at a fraction of the cost. In fact, keep listening. I'm going to tell you how to get 50% off. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz. My guest today is Dr. Nick Morgan. He is considered one of America's top communications coaches, and he's the author of a book we're going to talk about today, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. So, Nick, thanks for joining me again. John, great to be back with you. So, there are lots of pros to this virtual world. I mean, I've been doing this a long time, and I mean, it used to be if somebody wasn't in your town and you couldn't get in a car and go drive to them, you couldn't have them as a customer. Uh, Certainly, you couldn't have an employee. Uh, that that wasn't there, you know, kind of sitting at a desk. So there's a lot of pros, but obviously your book suggests that there are some inherent hurdles as well. So you want to kind of map out those hurdles that we maybe haven't considered that uh, now so many of us are doing a lot of our work virtually. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So uh, first I should acknowledge you're absolutely right that there are huge advantages to the virtual world. That's why it's taken the work world and, and a lot of our personal lives as well by storm. Um, and the greatest acceleration has been in the last decade with mobile phones. They've really transformed our lives. And after a decade, it's just become clear that in spite of what we thought at the beginning, it's not all good. And so on the positive side, we get what they call a reduction in friction out in uh, Silicon Valley, meaning it's much easier to send emails um, and everything else. Uh, it's also virtually free. Uh, your reach extends enormously. And as you said, it means that we can do things like work remotely and all that sort of thing. So there's huge amounts of good. It's not going away. I'm a, an audiophile myself, a, an early adapter. I, I love gadgets. I have all my uh, Apple gadgets lined up. So, so uh, your listeners should understand, I'm not saying that uh, this is a bad thing or, uh, or it's going to go away, either one. I'm saying that there are some problems which we're now slowly beginning to understand that really need to be paid attention to. And it was a couple of studies that caught my eye. Uh, first of all, there, there are two cohorts, as the statisticians like to say, that have been studied pretty closely. Um, and they, you may find it surprising. Uh, they are teenage girls and, um, and retired people for their usage of uh, virtual, uh, virtual media, virtual means of communication. Uh, teenage girls, of course, because Mobile phones have transformed their lives, perhaps more so than anybody else. They spend more time on mobile phones than any other group, as far as we know. Um, the, uh, the other group, perhaps surprisingly, again, is the uh, retired population, uh, shut-ins and, and uh, folks who are less mobile, perhaps. Um, and the whole idea for them was that the virtual world, world would be great because it would enable them to keep in touch with their grandchildren and, and their kids and, 
and enable them to stay connected to a world which, uh, which uh, otherwise might be harder for them if they were less mobile and so on and so forth. So studying those two populations was really shocking as I saw the research. There's a direct correlation between the amount of time those two populations spend on their mobile phones or in virtual media and their likelihood of being depressed. And so the basic equation or the basic deal that this will enable you to stay connected isn't working for those two populations and it isn't working for everybody else. And, and when I saw that, I thought I have to understand this a little bit better. And, and so I, I dove further into the research and I came up with five problems that the virtual world has that um, we need to address and, and we need to uh, do our best uh, to fix. So let me pause there for breath. And Yeah. And, and I wonder if, you know, I don't have a, I don't think there's too many teenage girls listening to the show or too many um, retired folks, but so, so you're, what, what you're suggesting is that that translates to, you know, some percentage of everybody who is, is doing this, including, you know, people who work for companies remotely and distributed. Do, would it be fair to say that, that you could also frame these as uh, differences? So in other words, they're, they're not just a problem necessarily. There's just a different way that we have to communicate given the technology that we're using. Yes. Um, that's the, that's the nice way to put it, John. <laughs> uh, and, and I got no, I have no problem with that. It, the other stat I should throw in there, by the way, is that employee disengagement um, as the number of virtual workers and the amount of virtual work we do goes up, uh, employee disengagement also increases. And it's currently at an all-time high. It's roughly two-thirds here in the United States and it's higher worldwide. So uh, the, it seems to be affecting the worker population too, although there's a correlation. We haven't established a, a causation, but there's a very strong correlation. And, and that, that, that's the caveat here. Um, so so yes, we do, and that's exactly the point of the book. We do need to learn a new way of communicating, but first we have to understand what's going wrong so that we can communicate better. Yeah, because one of the themes that comes up time and again, and not just in your book, anytime people have talked about technology, you know, technology was supposed to make us more connected, and uh, mm. study after study shows that we're now lonelier than ever. Yes, exactly. That's what starts me off, and 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 I thought I thought let's understand why, and then because that'll tell us what we can do about it. So the the first big problem is that we're still communicating as if we were communicating face to face. In other words, when I get on the phone, I don't think consciously. I've got to do something fundamentally different than when I'm when you and I are having a face to face conversation, and yet I do because here's what happens on email and on the phone and. Even in video conferencing, although to a slightly lesser extent, um, what happens is this huge wash of emotional information that normally gets exchanged between people um, easily and unconsciously, most of that gets lost. And, and let me give a, I don't mean to be mysterious about this. Let me give a simple example. So when you're sitting there conversing with somebody face to face and you say something a little smart ass, your hair is on fire, John. You can tell by the expression on my face that I'm kidding. Let's hope. Um, and I can tell if I say something that hurts your feelings or goes a little too far, I can tell right away by the look in your eye or the fact that you wince or something like that. That's what I mean. Those kind of simple human exchanges of intent 
are profoundly important for us humans. We care enormously about other people's intent and not just whether they like us or not, but are they on the team? Are they enthusiastic about this idea? Are they going to work hard to carry it out? Or are they just kind of lukewarm? Are we carrying them? Those kind of day-to-day work-related uh, concerns about other people's intent and our own intent are incredibly important to effective working. Well, and I suspect and, we get really and, conditioned, too, unconsciously, to take that feedback in, right? Exactly. I mean, we don't even know Precisely. we're doing it. Yeah, exactly. We're not even aware consciously that we're doing it. We don't have to think about it. But then we get on the phone, and it's just that much harder. And I could go into the technical reasons why that's the case. It has to do with data compression and the way voices are compressed over the phone. But let's not, let's not worry ourselves with the details. The point is just that it gets harder to detect that same emotional information. It's a much narrower bandwidth is a simple way to think about it. And then, of course, if you think about email, it's much, much worse. How many times have you sent an email with a clever little joke in it that you thought was hilarious, and the other person, for some unbelievable reason, got offended? <laughs> and then you had to spend six or seven emails sorting out the problem that you inadvertently caused because the other person was so dumb. <laughs> yeah, couldn't have been me. <laughs> I'll give you so, another example that I remember um, yeah. vividly. The, the first time I did a webinar, um, and actually it's so long ago, Nick, we called it a teleseminar. Was not uh, there was no video involved. People just got on the phone and listened. Um, Fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I remember I had been speaking publicly to audiences, you know, for a number of years by that point. Um, yeah. And I remember the first time I did that, I had trouble breathing because I was getting mm. no feedback at all, and I had no idea if what I was saying was landing at all. And I remember how different and odd that was. Yes, and you bring up the further point, which is really important for your audience to get, which is. Our brains are constantly seeking that emotional feedback and, and that feedback just about our surroundings. Uh, imagine us in the evolutionary state as uh, beings walking through the African savanna, uh, you know, looking for shadows because one of them might be a tiger. Uh, it's to our advantage to assume the worst in a situation like that because that's liable to keep us alive. So you can imagine people evolving to be the ones who survived to be a little more nervous than the folks who got eaten by the tigers. And so as a result, when we don't get that emotional information, precisely to your point about your, your talk, the first time you talked, then what we do is we assume the worst. We assume that those people hate us or they're disinterested or they've checked out or they're falling uh, on the floor or falling asleep. Um, and so we tend to get more anxious and more panicked and the communication tends to turn negative. And at the far end of this, of course, is trolling. And that's why there's so much trolling in the virtual world, because everybody's busy unconsciously assuming the worst about each other. And that's the first real serious hazard of virtual communications, and one that we certainly didn't intend back when we um, uh, invented the, or, or embraced, I should say, because I didn't invent it, but it embraced the uh, email world and then the, the uh, all the other aspects of, of the uh, virtual world. You know, the telephone is still a vital way to do business, but it's changed. The technology has changed, and CloudPhone is the answer. It's perfect for small business. It comes with local numbers, toll-free vanity numbers like 1-800-DUCT-TAPE. You can send and receive text messages on your business line. works with any of the phones that you already own, and you can get a ton of other business features like call recording and conference calling and voicemail transcription. Because you're one of my listeners, I'm going to get you a 50% off the Small Business Plan Forever deal. Just go to cloudphone.com slash duct tape. 
Well, and, I, and I'm, I'm probably jumping around here, but I, I'll throw that around too. The, the audience um, that is listening, I know now because I watch people uh, all the time and you hear anecdotally from people. And now that we have this technology, it'll say how much of your audience is multitasking while you're talking you know, right. on, on a webinar or something. And, and I, th- I think it's extremely – I know I – it's for, I don't attend to a lot of webinars and things myself because it's extremely hard for me to stay focused. It is. It's just there's less emotional input, throughput, if you will, coming through. Um, and that, that leads to the second problem, really, you just described it, which is without the emotional uh, feedback that we're getting, we don't stay engaged and we have a lack of empathy. Um, that is, we're less worried about the other people because we don't know how they're feeling. So we assume they're feeling kind of bad, but our empathy quotients really go way, way down. And as a result, again, trolling is the, uh, is the final outcome of that. And that leads to the, the, uh, the next problem, which is, and, and this one may surprise people, when you take out the empathy, when you take out the emotional information, then it gets harder to make good decisions. Now, that's, that's surprising, perhaps, because we tend to think of decision-making as a logical exercise. Uh, for Star Trek fans, this is Mr. Spock versus Captain Kirk. He, he's the, um, Spock is the decision-maker. He's the logical one. Right? But in fact, the way we make decisions is what we learn as a child. It's not logical. It's imagine that moment when you're two years old and you walk into the kitchen and there's this pretty red glowing object on the stove and you think, oh, that's cute. I'm going to go touch that. So you put your finger on it. What happens? You're suddenly awash in pain and anger and shock and horror and fury. And so you never, ever, ever do that again. Now, that's a very simple example of how memory works and, and how our brains are constructed. We have little experiences. It's like little videos running in our head. And we, we try stuff out. And according to how well or badly it works, we attach emotion to it and file it away in our brains. And so most of our uh, decision-making is really goes the, uh, like the following. So we go, okay, so I'm thinking about buying a new car. Well... The other times I bought a new car, it went like this. It was easy. It was hard. I got screwed by the, uh, the salesman. I didn't. I got a good deal good doing this. Um, so we compare it to past experiences, and then we make a dis- an emotional decision accordingly, depending on how painful or pleasant it was. Now, if you take out the emotional attachments, it gets harder for us to make decisions. It gets harder for us to measure the importance of what we're doing uh, because we're just not that interested. So imagine, for example, a work team on an audio conference that they do every single week and the boss is droning on and everybody's got it on mute and they're keeping up with email while they're talking or, or not talking while the boss is talking. And, and then the boss suddenly says, okay, so what do you want to do about X? And it's very hard for people at that point to make a good decision because they're not invested in the conversation. And, and they might be bored if they were face-to-face, but chances are it's a little harder to get away with and, and the boss would know and, and people would see each other and as a result they'd calibrate accordingly. So, so that's the, 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 the next problem that happens um, online and it's a subtle one. And it means we really have to watch ourselves because it's likely that the decision making, the quality of the decision making, in in virtual conversations is going to be poor. So, so, uh, and again, I know um, we've spent 
you know, more than half the show, a lot of show telling people what's wrong and what the problems are. So let, let's flip it completely around and say, okay, what do we need to be doing? Because, I mean, the reality is we, in some cases, have to work this way. So, so what do we, you know, what can we do to actually take those inherent challenges and say, okay, we need to be aware and so we need to do X? Uh, great. Yeah, excellent question. And that's, that's what uh, the book is about. And the bad news, if you will, is, in, is that there isn't one big thing you can do that will cure everything. The good news is there are a lot of fairly simple things you can do to begin to make the situation better. Uh, none of them is particularly complicated. What we're trying to do here is put in the, um, the emotional subtext that's been taken out. And so uh, what I say is we need to learn a new language. Um, and it has the great advantage of if you start practicing this at home and you have teenage kids, it'll make your teenage kids think you're really, really weird. And that's always good. So. So this is worth trying. <laughs> is, is this going to end with emojis in some fashion? Absolutely, John. It's Emojis are going to be involved. But the first thing to do, uh, and a little more seriously, is you need to think about asking yourself the question or asking your team the question. And, and you may even ask it out loud. But the question that really begins to get you thinking along the right lines is, how did what I just say make you feel? Now, if I ask that question to myself, and I'm in a conversation with you, John, and I realize I don't know the answer to that question, then I need to slow down and ask it, perhaps out loud, or ask some related questions that let me know, how is John really feeling about this? Was this successful or not? And one of the simple ways I recommend for people, for example, to do this who have a weekly staff meeting, let's say, um, a team meeting um, that's, that's virtual, and, and the team is spread out all over the world. It's in Singapore and California and Europe or something. You want to make this easy on yourself because you're going to be doing it every week. So just start the meeting by saying, okay, I want everybody to go around and check in um, like a stoplight, red, yellow, or green. And red means I'm facing a disaster. I shouldn't even be on this call. Um, yellow means eh, it's, things are a little tense or there's something going wrong, but I can cope. I'm here. And green means everything's great. And so that's a very easy thing to do. People have permission to do it. And then whoever the team leader is or the, whoever's convening the, the conference call, if somebody says red, they can say, oh, John, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, do you want to tell us what's going on or do you want to be let off the call? Um, it gives them permission uh, to address uh, the issue in a way that's much, much harder to do if you just say, okay, let's get started, everybody. How is everybody first? You know, they're one of those kind of things that we tend to do where the person who's really upset or really fuming or really got a real disaster is just sort of beginning to try to think, ah, how can I say this? <laughs> or how can I talk about it? I don't want to talk about it. I, 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 and, and then by the time he or she has figured out the answer to what they're going to say, everybody's already moved on. And, and you just don't have time to kind of get that in. So the, 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 the red, yellow, green allows you uh, the space and the respect of everybody to give an honest answer in that situation. And then you can ask that question again at the end of the meeting uh, just to see how the meeting affected people. But it's really about slowing down and starting to put in um, little markers like that that allow people, give people the room, the space, the respect uh, to be able to say how they're feeling. We just have to get more conscious of that because we can't keep communicating as if we were face-to-face. -face. Yeah, and I, and I think that that's one of the things that, um, you know, this, the, the, this 
mind-body connection, you know, that is so mm. important. Half of that's lost, um, I think, by, you know, yes. being virtual. But again, I go back to the fact that, you know, that's the way we work today. And so I think we just need to come up with new, you know, new habits, new ways to work. And, and one of the things I, I remember reading in the, in the book is that, you know, and I think this is what you're alluding to, this kind of chit-chat, you know, period in the beginning, how's everybody doing, you know. But, but the reality is that there, you know, we used to do that when we'd walk down the hall uh, from each other. And so we'd know how people were doing or we'd know exactly. what was going on in their family. And now exactly. that may be the only opportunity we get is that kind of first five minutes in the weekly status call. Um, so, you know, I, I struggle with that sometimes. You know, how do you how do you, you know, have that moment? Do you need to separate that moment and, and make that another meeting somehow? Yeah, I, I recommend a, a number of strategies, and, and you can pick the one that works for you. The The problem with the beginning of that typical conference call is think how it actually goes. It, you've got a sound that lets you know that somebody else has come on. So here's how it goes. You, you, you sign in. Let's say you're the team leader and you're responsible, and you sign in a minute beforehand, so you're all ready to go. And you hear the first boop when somebody else signs in. You go, oh, who's that? And it says, it's John. Oh, John, great. How you doing? And we, and we have something that, that corresponds to a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And we start into that for about 15 seconds. And then there's another boop. And somebody else goes, oh, who's that? Oh, it's Bill. Okay, Bill. Great. Well, Bill, uh, it's Nick and John on the call. Um, how are you? And then Bill, since it's a three-way conversation, we, we have a little different uh, response in a kind of a three-way conversation than we do a two-way conversation. And so Bill starts in on how he is, but perhaps not as, as uh, honestly, right? And then the, he's two seconds in and we hear another boop, and then who's that? And so you end up with this really idiotic, uh, it's typically the first five minutes of one of these calls where, where there's just endless interruptions and it's really hard to get a clear conversation going with anybody, let alone the whole group. And so I suggest um, a couple of things. The, uh, the, the stoplight approach is one, Another is uh, to say, we're all going to sign in at such and such a time, and the first X minutes are going to be chit-chat. Uh, we encourage you to join, and then we'll start the business at such and such a time. Um, that relies on people being honest and good timekeepers, uh, and we all know in the business world, some are better than others. Um, another one is to get people, and this works really well for teams that are in different countries, uh, is to get people to record little 30-second videos of themselves, of their surroundings, of uh, a conversation they're having, or uh, uh, the look from their desk, or, or just, just anything about their local culture that matters to them, or a fun thing they did on the weekend. You can set the assignment so everybody has permission to do it. And you'd be surprised how well that brings people uh, together, because everybody gets a chance to see the videos as the meeting starts, um, and laugh at them, or, or celebrate with them, or or uh, re respond accordingly. Uh, so that's a, that's another one that works. And, and yet another one is to put the, uh, and, and this one it depends on having a good team already, um, a strongly united team, but you can put the chit-chat at the end because that then avoids all the interruptions. Um, that can feel a little more artificial unless the team is really strong. Uh, but the, the point is that you need to separate out the chit-chat, as you were calling it, but it's really the emotional connection, the trust-building, let's say, is a better word for it, better term for it, the trust-building part of a call like that, and then the business transaction part of the call like that, because it's hard in a virtual setting to do both cleanly and well, um, and so it works much better to separate them. And then, of course, 
another and even better way to, to go about this is to uh, is to insist on regular face-to-face meetings. Um, and the general argument in favor of virtual communication and against face-to-face meetings is expense and time. That's the great advantage of the virtual uh, the virtual world. It's free. Uh, you don't have to travel. Uh, you save enormous amounts on your travel budget, and um, it's uh, it's very convenient. Well, think about how actually rich a face-to-face conversation is in the ways that which we've been talking. It's an actually a very efficient way for commu- humans to communicate. And so, if trust is at all an important part of what your team does or what you do with your customers, if, if this is a customer call, then you should be enhancing that virtual conversation with a face-to-face one every now and then. And you'll save yourself enormous amounts of effort online just because when we're face-to-face, all that communication happens so effortlessly. So in, even as we move further and further into the virtual world, don't forget the importance and the ultimate efficiency of a face-to-face conversation. You know, my one of my daughters uh, worked for a few years for a company. I think they had about a hundred employees at the time, um, and they were all distributed. Uh, so there was no office uh, for for the company yeah. at all. Um, and three times a year or so, they would take yeah. a week and go somewhere really cool. And they, but they would all work. You know, yeah. for the week, it wasn't just play. I mean, it was let's you know let's work on. It was a software company. Let's work on code together in the same room, yep. and um, and I think that that really uh, they they still had an incredibly strong culture. I think yes. by, by virtue of taking that money that they might have spent on an office building and putting it into what I think was probably a, a, a more cultural enriching uh, um, exp- or, uh, expenditure. Absolutely, yeah, that's the best of both worlds. Something something like that is the best way, really, to handle the virtual aspect and the face-to-face aspect. I want to end on one um, that that I think haunts everyone, um, and that's if you had a couple tips for email. I, I know over the years, um, as it's become such an important tool, I, I know the one thing that I definitely do is I spell everything out as plainly as I possibly can and make no assumptions that they understand you know, what I'm trying, the point I'm, you know, I'll go back and read it and go, okay, could that be, should I have used a, you know, a noun there instead of a pronoun there? I mean, I I really, you know, sweat over, you know, important emails they probably end up a little longer, but I hope that they're clear. Yeah. You're, you're doing exactly the right thing. One of the sort of implicit uh, things that happens as we get more important and rise up through the ranks in an organization is all the studies show this our emails tend to get shorter and shorter. And there's a kind of, there's a reason for it as presumably as you go up the ranks, you're answering more and more email. So you've just got more to cope with, but it's also part showing off too, isn't it? Like I'm so busy and important. I can afford, or I have to respond with a one word response. Well, it's almost better to, to uh, type out the one word response on a piece of paper and then set it on fire rather than sending a, a, a one word email because the, the likelihood that you're going to be misunderstood, especially as you become more important in the organization, we care more and more about your intent. And we care most of all about the CEOs or the, or the president's intent. And so it's most incumbent on him or her to, to be most clear. And so I recommend in the book a, a format that, that sort of ensures it. You start with a headline and, and it says what the, the uh, email is about. Um, and, and then you give the substantive part of it. And then you talk about the emotions at the end. And then you ask, you give the other person permission to ask, um, how, how does this make, 
make me feel or to answer how, how this makes me feel. Um, and I also recommend, and, and, and people may find this funny, uh, the use of emojis and emoticons because uh, uh, early on there's, there's some research that suggested that in the business world, people look down initially on folks who use the uh, emoticons and emojis because they were, uh, they were seen as sort of childish or something. Um, but they can save a lot of hurt and time. You put a smiley face at the end of something that's intended to be a joke, then just maybe the other person won't get as offended by the tone in it. And maybe they'll say, okay, yeah, he was just kidding. I'll forgive him. Um, and so it's a huge time saver. So I would say use the emojis. Um, the, especially the millennials are going to use them anyway. And so in a few years, it's going to be second nature. You're going to have to use them or you're going to look like uh, uh, somebody who's out of touch. Um, and so get used to emojis, use them because they're going to save you a lot of emotional angst. Yeah. And, and I would say my own experience too, you know, you get in a hurry and you're just trying to answer what somebody asked you. Um, yeah. and, and you forget to say thank you for, right. you know, responding right. to my email and giving me such a thorough answer, you know, and, and I think that's a, um, that's not intentional. I think it's just the person's not there. So I just, it, I didn't quite have the cue to say thank you first. And I think that yeah. that's, that's one that I certainly try to work on. Yeah. And you do that automatically if the person was face to face. So one, one of the little tragedies I learned about the other day was, uh, uh studies of, of kids who have Alexa in the household or, or the uh, Google equivalent. And they actually learn to demand things of other people that sound incredibly rude when you're face-to-face. -face. So they'll say to somebody, uh, Daddy, uh, get me uh, s some cookies, right? Whereas normally they'd learn, can I please have some cookies? Or Daddy, would you please get me some cookies? Where, uh, because that's what works with Alexa. And so uh, I've heard... And, and I don't have the uh, direct evidence to support this, but I've heard that uh, Alexa and some others are now creating child versions that demand you say please and thank you to Alexa, which I think is a very good idea if that's who's teaching us how to uh, communicate. You know, you, you'd get a kick out of this. I actually ask Alexa to please tell me a joke. <laughs> I don't demand it because I think you're absolutely right. And uh, she or he or whatever uh, Alexa is um, will respond even if you ask politely. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And it's good practice, John, for when you actually talk to a real human being. <laughs> You'll remember how to do it. <laughs> well, Nick, this was fun. Thanks for joining me. I'm speaking with Dr. Nick Morgan, author of Can You Hear Me? So, Nick, uh, tell us where people can find out more about you and your, your work as well as the book. Uh, sure. Thanks. It's publicwords.com is our website. And there's lots of uh, free information there about public speaking, my passion. Uh, as well as uh, the hazards of the virtual world. So uh, have a look there, and there's a contact form that you can ask me questions directly or just send it to my email, nick at publicwords.com. You know, and, and maybe I'm not stealing your thunder here because maybe you're already in conversations with people. This ought to be a college class. You know, I think you're right. <laughs> all right. Nick. I, I think we all need it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So thanks again, and uh, hopefully we'll run into you out there on the road someday soon. Excellent. Thanks, John. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. 
On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.